0: Opportunity to teach an advanced preaching class at Covenant Seminary. I had 11 guys in my class, and uh, each of them preached two sermons. So, over the course of the semester, I listened to 22 sermons. Uh, All of them had something redemptive in them, all of them had some uh, good points. Uh, But as you're listening to new preachers, uh, you know, the challenge for these guys, they're preaching to seminary students, the challenge for them is to kind of take uh, what they're learning from the technical side of things, and apply it uh, to a congregation, to people in, in real life, in real circumstances, and real situations. So as I listened to these young guys preach, number one, I got really encouraged, because they're really uh, the next generation of leaders that are coming up have some real gifts and some real abilities, at least the 11 guys that, that I was around. Uh, but as I listened, I said, you know what, I'm going to pick the guy that I think has really uh, gone the furthest with his preaching skills, and I'm going to invite him to come to Green Tree, and practice on live people. So he's going to practice on you guys this morning. And I know that you're going to welcome him. I know you're going to learn something from him because I've been in ministry for 27 years and both the sermons he preached in my class, I learned a great deal. His name is Jeremy Irwin. Uh, he is a worship leader at The Journey. He's from Chesterfield, uh, Marquette High School. Is that right? You got to ask the St. Louisdale. That's right. Marquette. So please welcome my brother Jeremy Irwin as he preaches to us this morning. Hey, good morning.
1: It's a pleasure to be here with you guys uh, today. As Tom said, I had him throughout the semester, and I was speaking to lots of fellow seminary students, and when he cornered me and asked me if I'd come here, he kept saying, it'd be great for you to preach to real people in a real audience. And he said this three or four times, and it finally occurred to me that Tom doesn't think seminary students are real people. <laughs> so thanks a lot for that big guy, and uh, <laughs> right back at you. Um, so Luke 10 is the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. You guys have all heard this story, I'm sure, even if this is your first time in church. So if you want to turn there with me, passage is Luke 10. We're going to be looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you want to follow along, I'll start reading in verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, Compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set on him his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And then Jesus asks, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. So this is one of the most familiar and beloved stories in the scriptures. It seems so pleasant and nice and kind and inclusive. And if you heard this preach before, I would imagine it went something like this. You need to be like the good Samaritan. You need to be a good person. You need to be kind to people who are in need. You need to be kind to strangers. And that's the interpretation of this passage. Well, that's true. I'm not saying you should be unkind to strangers or not help people in need. But I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching here in Luke 10. Because I think that fails to take into account several things. It fails to take into account how parables work, which this is one. It fails to take into account the historical context of the first century which we're going to dive into a little bit, and it fails to take into account the actual text itself, this conversation that Jesus is having with a Jewish lawyer. So to get at some of these issues, I'm going to tell you a parable that you've never heard before in your entire lives so that you can kind of experience what it would feel like to hear a parable for the first time. So you guys ready? This is is not biblical. This is just a parable. Uh, That could be trouble later. Um, All right, so it's called the parable of the monk and the bird. All right, so this monk went on a very long journey, and it was cold, and he was low on provisions, so he had to hurry along to his destination. And on the way, he found this baby bird who had fallen out of its nest that was high in a tree, and its mother was nowhere to be found. And so the monk knew that the baby bird would die if he didn't do something. But he also knew that he would die if he didn't hurry along to his destination. So he did the best that he could. He scooped up the baby bird, and he found the only warm thing he could find, which was a steaming pile of cow dung. And he places the baby bird into that pile, and he goes on his way. And the bird is warm and safe. And then the bird starts chirping because it wants its mother but its mother is nowhere to be found. Instead, a fox hears the bird chirping. And when the fox investigates the scene and finds the baby bird unattended, it quickly eats it up. Discuss. (laughs) That's what it would have been like to hear a parable for the first time see, parables, they kind of follow close to real life, but then they have a surprising twist. Parables are confusing. They're ambiguous. You're not really sure what it means. You have to think about it for a while. And parables disarm us. See, we get into the story, and we form attachments to the characters. And then when the end comes, we're not really sure what to do. It's kind of like if you watch the television show Lost, You love the characters, you have no idea where it's going, you can't believe you still watch it, but you do. (laughs) All right, so you guys want to hear the interpretation of that story? All right, here it is. When you find yourself surrounded by a pile of (laughs) manure, the one who got you into it is not necessarily your enemy. And the one who got you out of it is not necessarily your friend. Fair enough, right? Clever. Yeah. (laughs) So the Bible uses parables all the time. And biblical parables are similar to this one. You see, the Bible asks you to get into the story. You choose sides. You get invested with one of the characters. And a lot of the times in the Bible, you are one of the characters. And a lot of the times in the Bible, Jesus is one of the characters. But there's one more thing you need to know about parables before we jump into this text, and that is that parables are used in context, and that context shapes their meaning. So that parable that I just told you about the monk and the bird, this is where it was used, and Dr. Doriani at Covenant told me about this, so I'm borrowing it from him, but this is where it was used. The dean of faculty at a major university was speaking to an incoming crop of new professors, right? So you got head administrator talking to new professors, and he tells his story about a monk and a baby bird. And the monk puts the bird in. And the bird chirps, 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 chirps. And the bird gets eaten by a fox. Tells the story. And here's his interpretation. Speaking to the new professors. He says, when you find yourself surrounded by a mess, the best thing to do is to shut your mouth. Because if you start chirping... And complain about the administration, you may very well find that a fox comes and eats you up. (laughs) So what's my point? The point is the context influences the meaning of the parable. And I'm going to argue that that's exactly what's happening in Luke 10. So let's dive into the context. Luke 10.25 says, There is a lawyer who plans to test Jesus with a question. Now, that's very important. Right off the bat, we have a man who is disingenuous. He's not really interested in the answer. He's, he's interested in testing Jesus. He thinks he's going to teach Jesus something. He wants to trick him. And so he asks this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus does this thing all the time where he answers a question with a question, which I know you're not supposed to do that, but he does it all the time. He likes to change the direction of the conversation and the way that he wants it to go. And so he says to the lawyer, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer gives a great answer. Quotes Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, this is how Jesus himself summarizes the entire Old Testament. Good answer. And Jesus says, that's right. Do this and you will live. And I imagine at this point the lawyer might start feeling a little silly because he's asked a question that he knew the answer to. And that's a little pointless. Why do you do that? Why do you ask a question that you already know the answer to? Well, you might do it to set yourself up for a next question. You might do it to prove something. And that's exactly what the, the text says in verse 29. It says, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus. And this is the important part of the context. You have a man who is trying to justify something about himself. And he asks a question to do so. He says, who is my neighbor? So that's what's at stake here. This man has an assumption about who his neighbor is that he's trying to justify. And that is exactly what Jesus exposes with the parable of the Good Samaritan. So I'm going to give you some of the details of the first century that will help us to understand this parable. Okay, so Jesus tells a story about a Jew who was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. And I know that when you guys are reading your Bibles and you see the names of cities, the first thing you do is look to the map section and chart out the journey. And now I'm sure none of you do that. I don't do it either. But here's the deal. Jericho is 18 miles away from Jerusalem, and it's to the north and to the east. And there's a 3,200-foot drop in elevation in between these two cities. So you've got an 18-mile journey, steadily downhill, rocky, craggy, lots of caves. This is a perfect spot for bandits and robbers, and everybody knew that. So there's a man who takes this journey by himself, takes a risk, and he gets mugged, and he gets robbed. And they steal all of his clothes, and they beat him, and they leave him. The text says, naked and half dead in a ditch in the side of the road. All right, so now these characters come and pass by him, right? The famous priest and Levite who go to the other side of the road and don't help him and take on, and you think to yourself, These are absolutely despicable human beings. What the heck is wrong with them? But if you understand the first century context, things get a little more complicated. And here's why. Okay, so priests were descendants of Aaron. And they were all members of the tribe of Levi. So you've got the tribe of Levi, and then a section of that is the priesthood. And they had a very specific job to do from birth. It was hereditary. They didn't have a choice. They went into the priesthood. They worked in the temple. They offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. They conducted and led the worship services and on the holy days. And that's what they did. They spent their lives there. And there were very strict laws pertaining to their cleanliness. So there were certain things priests weren't allowed to do or else they had to pay the consequences. And one of those things was touching dead people. Priests weren't allowed to do it. If you look in the book of Leviticus, chapter 21 and Numbers 19, It basically says, if you touch a dead person, you are unclean for seven days. So for a priest, that meant you couldn't go to the temple and you couldn't work for seven days. So you lost a week's worth of salary. So this priest touches this guy who may be dead. He's out a lot of money. And he also has to buy a very expensive animal and sacrifice it, a red heifer that has no spot or blemish and that has never been used for work. So the priest is in a dilemma here. I mean, if he touches this man who is potentially dead, he doesn't know, he would be out a lot of money. I mean, he would be jeopardizing the financial situation of his family. So is he really that despicable of a human being? I mean, yes and no. Maybe he's just the unwitting victim of this system. And the Levite. Who comes next, sees the man, crosses to the other side of the road, and passes by. Very similar situation. You see, in the first century, Levites, remember the Levites are a tribe, and then the priests are a little part of that tribe. The Levites' job was to help the priests. They basically served in the temple. Some of them were musicians. Some of them were guards. This is what they did for a living. And by the first century, the Levites had decided, okay, here's how you be a good Levite. You do everything that's required of a priest even though it wasn't technically required of them, they had decided that they were going to follow the lifestyle of the priest. So the Levite, who sees this dead man, thinks to himself, I'm going to be out a week's salary. I'm going to have to buy this very expensive animal. I can't help this guy. And that's precisely the point with these two guys. Sometimes doing the hard thing and doing the right thing is very costly. And so they pass by, and we get to this third character. Where everyone knows the Samaritan, and he is the hero of the story, and this is kind of the shock value that if you were in the first century, you would have gotten this. Having a Samaritan as a hero of a story is kind of like having a Nazi as the hero or having a terrorist as the hero. I mean, they're not exactly equivalent, but it's a shocking individual to have as a hero. And why? Well, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. They wouldn't drink out of the same cups. They wouldn't eat at the same restaurants. They had this ongoing ethnic feud that had been raging for centuries. And it was based on a lot of things. It was based on the fact that Jews thought Samaritans were idolaters because they built another temple outside of Jerusalem and offered sacrifices there. Jews thought Samaritans were half-breeds. They had intermarried with a lot of the pagan nations that surrounded them. Jews thought Samaritans were immoral. When it was politically expedient, the Samaritans sided with Alexander the Great in the 4th century B.C., and then they sided with the Romans in the 1st century B.C. So the Jews despised the Samaritans. And you can even tell this with the disciples. If you look, and you guys don't have to turn there, but in Luke 9, we have this account of Jesus preaching in a Samaritan village, and the disciples are with him. And the Samaritans aren't particularly receptive to the message and the first response to the disciples is, Lord, call down fire from heaven and smash them. And that is their concept of Samaritans. They despise them. They are prejudiced against them. In other words, Jews think Samaritans are subhuman. They're garbage. They're disgusting excuses. And Jesus tells this story about a heroic Samaritan who not only offers life-giving help, but who does so with extreme generosity. I mean, the text says, when the Samaritan saw the man, he had compassion, and he bound his wounds, and he poured on oil, and he took him to an inn, and he paid for all of his medical expenses. The Samaritan, at grace cost to himself, saved this enemy's life. So this is a story about a perceived enemy who was actually a friend. It's a story about life-giving help coming from an unexpected place. It's a story about how hard it is to do the right thing and how easy it is to justify not doing the right thing. All right, so back to the context. Jesus finishes his story, and he asks the lawyer, who was a neighbor to the man in need? And here is where we get a little glimpse of what's really going on in the lawyer's heart. Here's where we see some of his prejudice coming out. Because the answer to Jesus' question is the Samaritan. That's the answer. But the lawyer can't bring himself to say that. He can't bring himself to honor a Samaritan. So instead, he says something like, I suppose the one who showed him mercy was the neighbor to the man. And Jesus responds, go and do likewise. Go and show mercy indiscriminately. If people are in help, if people are in need of help, help them. Everyone is your neighbor. God has no prejudices. God does not make distinctions. God is not going to limit the scope of who needs help. You see, part of loving God means loving who God loves. And part of being a person of God is loving the people who God loves, and that means sinners like you and me. And if you don't love sinners, however you define that. And you should question whether or not you love God. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so we see what's really going on in the passage is that the lawyer is trying to limit God's commands to justify his prejudice. He's trying to shrink the meaning of love your neighbor as yourself so that he didn't have to love Samaritans. And Jesus knew it. So he paints this picture of a heroic Samaritan and in so doing, utterly exposes the lawyer's racism. And it should be a stern warning to all of us that this lawyer who had great theology and could answer Jesus' questions well was actually filled with prejudice and opposing the purposes of God. And friends, to a certain extent, we all do this. We all narrow the commands of God. We shrink the scope of his demands. We diminish God's law to justify our sinful attitudes and actions. We decide which commands we want to obey, and then we ignore the rest. See, the lawyer didn't want to obey the whole law of God, so he decided to change it to fit his strengths and preferences. And we all do this. We think things like, well, I don't drink, and I don't smoke, and I don't cheat on my spouse, so I'm a good person. Never mind that I'm stingy with my money. I never pray or touch the Bible except when I really need something and I look down on immigrants and the poor. We say things like, I don't cheat on my taxes. I've never had an abortion. I don't struggle with homosexual desires. So I must be a good person. Never mind that I hate Democrats or Republicans. I daily indulge lustful fantasies. I'm addicted to television and food. See, we all do this. We limit God's commands. We focus on our strength, and we gloss over our failures. And then because we have to feel good about ourselves, we judge other people. We look at our sin as minor and inconsequential, and their sin as major and offensive. And we'll say things like, sure, I occasionally tell white lies, but can you believe what he did? I would never do that. And this is how personal prejudices form. We begin to think that we are better than other people. And we overlook our obvious flaws. We magnify the failures of others. And filled with self-righteousness, we exclude and marginalize people. And this is exactly what the lawyer was up to in Luke 10. And Jesus knew it, so he exposed him. And he exposes us too. I mean, what are our prejudices? In this country, many of us are prejudiced against the poor. I mean, do we think all people are poor because they're lazy? Or not. The Bible talks about the hardworking poor and the lazy poor. And it talks about the hardworking rich and the lazy rich. Being poor doesn't mean that you are ungodly, and being rich doesn't mean that you're godly. I'll tell you a prejudice of mine that I'm ashamed of, but that became very clear to me when I was preparing this message. Have any of you guys called tech support recently? I had the uh, immense privilege of doing that last week. And after uh, two hours of a Kenny G soprano saxophone solo, which was wonderful, um, I spoke to five different people, none of whose first language was English and I started getting more and more frustrated in my heart because I couldn't understand what they were saying. They weren't understanding what I was saying. And I realized that a prejudice was forming. And never once did I consider that this is a human being who is made in the image of God, whom Jesus was glad to die for because he loves them. Prejudices, does the Holy Spirit want to expose in your life? Who do you look down on or despise? Who would you hesitate to help if they needed it? Tech workers like me, waiters and waitresses, immigrants, the poor, homosexuals, some of us, family members, the guy who mows your yard. Jesus is calling us to consider our hearts. He's exposing our darkness. Friends, like the lawyer in Luke 10, we are filled with prejudice. We are constantly justifying attitudes and actions that we know are wrong. And then we judge others who do the same thing. And why? Why do we do that? Well, I would submit it's because we know that we're not who we should be. And we all desperately need and want to feel acceptable to God. And many of you think that the only way you can do that is to be a really good person. So when Jesus says, you cannot narrow the commands of God, you're called to show mercy indiscriminately to all people. We think, you know, that's a beautiful standard. That's just, it's, it's lovely. Sounds like a wonderful idea. But come on, Jesus, nobody can do that. I mean, that is an impossible standard. Nobody can be that good. And friends, that's exactly right. You can't be the good Samaritan by trying harder and doing better. You cannot keep the commands of God, and neither can I, with our self-generated moral effort. The Bible says we are dead in our sins says our best behavior, our righteousness, is like filthy rags before God. And if that were the end of the story, then we should all just leave here in despair and eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But I praise God that it's not. It's not where Jesus leaves us. It's not where he leaves the lawyer in Luke 10. You see, the bad news Is really bad. Jesus exposes our prejudices, but the good news is far greater. For you see, now we are getting to the true heart of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you and I, like the lawyer with whom Jesus was conversing, we are naked and we are half dead, men and women before God. We are full of prejudice and sin, and we deserve to be passed by. But Jesus Christ himself is the Good Samaritan and he sees us, and he has compassion on us, and he brings healing, and he pays for it with his own resources, gladly. Though God has every right to leave us in our sins, he does not. He's chosen not to do so because he is love, and he loves us. See, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, as our help. He is our substitute. And Jesus prayed the price of the penalty that our sins deserved, and he suffered God's righteous wrath on our behalf when he died on the cross. And the Bible says that our sin is so bad that Jesus had to die, but his love is so great that he was glad to die. So Jesus took our sins and gave us his righteousness. He took our naked and beaten and broken lives, and he brings healing. And he pays for it himself. You see, the message of Christianity is not, be the good Samaritan and God will accept you. It's not it. The message of Christianity is God is the good Samaritan. And God has already accepted you in Jesus Christ. And because that's true, you can gladly obey and respond to his grace. So how do we receive this help that Jesus offers us. Well, the Bible says, repent and believe the gospel. Seems simple, right? Well, what does repent mean? Repent in the Bible means to turn away from something. The Greek word is uh, metanoia, which literally means to have the same mind as, to agree with. So to repent from your sins means to agree with God about what your sins are and what that means. That your sins are evil, that they are a violation of the commands of God, that sin is like adultery. It is breaking covenant with one who has been faithful and loving towards us. And so we repent of our sins, we turn from them. But Luke 10, I think, is telling us something very interesting that's also true. Not only do we repent of our sins, we repent of our righteousness. That's what Jesus is getting at. He's saying you think you can gain eternal life by keeping the law, but you can't. If you want help, stop trying to save yourself. Stop relying on your go- own good works. Stop relying on your own moral performance to impress God because it won't. Instead, trust the moral performance of Jesus Christ. Receive help from an unexpected place. Your righteousness is not good here, but the righteousness of Jesus is. You see, Christianity is not primarily about your commitment to God. It's about God's commitment to you and to me. And this is the paradox of entering into Christianity for those of you that are on the fence. You know, as soon as you say, I am sick and I am beyond recovery, Jesus says, I'm your doctor. As soon as you say, Lord, I can't pay for the evil that I've done, Jesus says, I'll be your payment. As soon as you say, but I'm dead in my sins. Jesus says, you're alive in me, so follow me. And this, friends, if you get this, that you are more sinful than you ever dared to imagine, but that you're also more loved and accepted than you could have possibly dreamed, if you get that, that is the end of prejudice. It starts dying slowly but surely. And it gives you something that Tim Keller calls... Humble confidence. This is a mark of a Christian. You're humble and you're confident at the same time. It doesn't seem like they go together, but they do. And that's how God starts killing your prejudice. You see, you're humbled because you realize that everyone is deserving of God's wrath, that your righteousness is not worth anything before God, and neither is anyone else's. So you can't be superior or better than anyone else. You're all on the same level. We're all equally the same before god we can pretend that we're not but we are so the gospel humbles us and it kills our prejudice in that way but the gospel also gives us confidence and kills our prejudice in that way you see friends we who believe have the love and acceptance and smile of god the father and if that's true then we don't need to feel better than other people We don't need to prove that we're superior. We don't need to pit our group against their group and our tribe against their tribe because we have the love of God. What more do we need? Tim Keller calls this the living argument. He said, if God really loves us, if God is really for us, and he really lives inside of us, then we're secure. We don't need to prove anything to anyone. We can serve the lowest of the low, We don't need to have a pride that's based on how good we are. Instead, we can live lives based on how good God is for us. So friends, like Jesus and like the Good Samaritan, we are called to leverage our power and our resources and our influence for the good of others. We are called to participate in the redeeming mission of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our Good Samaritan. He gives mercy indiscriminately at great cost to himself. And we who follow him on his mission have the privilege of doing the same. Let's pray.